Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. Today, for introductions, we're going to do favorite conundrums. I'm Aaliyah. My favorite conundrum is if you're falling to your death in a fiery elevator, do you listen to Hello, Darkness, My Old Friend by Desperation or the Kung Fu Panda soundtrack? <laughs> okay, well, I'm Cameron, and I have a lot of trouble deciding between skeletons and zombies as minions. Um, I'm Kristen, and my favorite conundrum is trying to decide if I would rather have legs the length of fingers or fingers the length of legs. We actually discussed this at length we before did. we started. We did, and I think my vote is legs the length of fingers. Okay. <laughs> um, my name is Caitlin, and I've been wondering if I would rather have a beak for a face or whether I would rather have no mouth to talk at all. My name is Ben, and my current conundrum is if I should buy my son a Christmas present in New Jersey or if I should buy my son a Christmas present in Utah when I fly out to Utah for Christmas. Yeah, that's a, that's a real life conundrum. I don't know. Kristen's, it could be. It could be. <laughs> you don't know. You can't prove it's not. I'm Catherine Purdy. And would you rather walk for two weeks in the rain or not shower for two weeks? Mm, that's a good one. Okay, well, as you've probably noticed this week, we have some special guests. We have recurring contributor Ben Grange, who is an agent at the L. Perkins Literary Agency. And we have number one New York Times bestseller, Catherine Purdy, author of Burning Glass, Crystal Blade, and Frozen Rain. So thank you so much for coming. We're glad to have you. Today, we have a fun discussion on crucibles, particularly how to build a crucible for your characters and put it into your story. So what is a crucible both generally and in the context of this discussion? A crucible, if you want to talk about it in a chemistry reference, it's a vessel which different ingredients are melded together in white hot heat. So you can put like various metals together and they'd, they'd melt together and make like a new alloy or something. So for writing, it's a container that holds characters together as things heat up. So it can be a closed environment, like you're stuck in an elevator, that's a trope, or like The Breakfast Club, that movie where they're all stuck in detention. Or it can be an emotional environment, like if you want to think of Star Wars, like Luke, Leia, Darth Vader, they're a family that can't escape each other. There are a couple of different kinds of crucibles, too. There can be a physical one, like you're talking about where you're stuck physically in an area. I just watched an episode of Doctor Who where they're stuck like in this alien bust and can't go outside because the sunlight will kill them. There's also emotional okay. crucibles, like you're talking about with a family. And then there's also social ones, like in mm -hmm. the office, where Pam and Jim stay working at that office because they're friends, slash wish they were more than friends. So love is a crucible, for sure. Because you can't just snap your fingers and decide you're out of love with somebody. And love can cause you to do crazy things like continue to work in that office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the important thing about a crucible is that your character's motivation to stay in it has to be bigger than their motivation to run away from it. So, okay, one of my favorite series, uh, The Queen's Thief. The King of Atolia is such a good example of this because you have a main character who does not want to be king, but he loves his wife so much that he ends up staying there and being really good at what he does, even though he easily could leave if he wanted to. And so the tension, I guess, between what he wants and what he wants more is what makes a really cool crucible. Exactly. And like going back to Star Wars, yes, you're a family and you can't, you can't just 
again, like snap your fingers and say, I'm not going to be a part of this family. You could, but your story would probably end there because that's the thing that's creating the tension. And there would be a lot of steps to actually distance yourself from a family. But uh, Luke and Vader, like one, they both want the other to turn to the light or to the dark. And that's what keeps them together. Beyond the family, it's that like that moral urge they, that they both feel is the right thing. And they're desperate because they're family to get the other to change sides. And when the crucible ends, the story's over. When Vader dies and one of them switches over, the story's over. That's usually a crucible-focused story. That's, what, that's when the story ends, when the crucible ends, whether they fix their problems within it or whether they fix their problems by breaking out of the crucible. Well, and part of a crucible, like scientifically speaking, is that you put two things together and like whatever process, you create something new. And so I think that's true of characters as well. You either create something new or you break it. That's a really good point. Kind of transitions to our next question. How is a crucible different from any other kind of climax? I don't know if I really think about it in terms of being a climax, other than that when it's when the characters fix their problems, that's when it ends, or when they or they escape the situation and that's when it ends. And not every story has to have a crucible. And you can even think of it as scene centric rather than like entire plot centric. I mean, personally, yeah. I mean, when I when I first heard this question, the the thought that popped into my mind was that a climax is a moment in your story, but a crucible is more of a process. So we've talked about a, a whole bunch of different stories, Star Wars being one of them. And the, the, the crucible in this story is not just the ending when, like Catherine was saying, that Luke defeats the dark side and, and Vader dies and, and everything is happy again. It's it's the entire process up to that moment that brings them together to the climax. So it's not yeah. necessarily a climax, but more of something that can get you there. And I think this is a good time to bring this up that one of the hardest parts about writing a book is your middle and not knowing what to stick in the middle of your book, because you know your climax, you know your beginning, you know your inciting incident, but Figuring out how to get to that climax is such a hard thing to do. And so if you stick your characters into these crucibles of, of love, of social pressure, of emotional conflict, those are the things that can drive your story forward in the middle and provide good, fulfilling story for your reader to pull them along to that moment of the climax when the story will be close to finish. Yeah, exactly. So I think of a crucible more as like a tool for tension. Yeah. So your stories might not have them, but can you add one to your story? It's going to add so much tension and it's going to fill up that middle space, not with just fluff, but with internal and sometimes external forces if it's a closed environment, but forces that are going to add tension so that the stakes are that much higher when they do get to the climax and are trying to figure out how to fix their story problem. I think an example of what you guys are talking about is the Hunger Games, because you have an artificial, like the Hunger Games arena is a crucible. It forces the characters all together. And through the whole thing, we know only one character can survive. And so the tension is building and building, building that Katniss and Peeta, I mean, one of them's going to have to kill the other one. That's a yeah. crucible. I mean, I don't know if that's the only way you could frame that particular crucible, but it, it adds tension as we go, because we know like that we're going to get down to that point. And so it like rockets people into the climax of the book. 
the very best thing I think you can do, and it's not always going to be possible, but whenever you can combine a physical crucible with an emotional crucible, it's double your bang for your tension. And that's also why the Hunger Games work so well, because you've got the closed environment of the arena, but then you have the crucible of love, whether or not Katniss even really believes she's in love or can trust it. There's still that relationship, whatever you want to call it with PETA, whether it's romantic or whatever they feel she comes to trust him and that's that's a crucible. And then her, like the duty she feels to do the right thing, which is why she entered the arena in the first place, is to protect her sister and then the injustice of the world she lives in. Those are all things that that drive the, the physical motivation of winning that game. One of my favorite parts of The Hunger Games is that Katniss's crucible isn't necessarily that she's in love with PETA, but that she has to pretend that she is in order to protect her family. And so... It's so important for her to pretend that she's in love with PETA when she really isn't. Red Rising has a lot of parallels to that same crucible. So in particular, I was going to say there's one scene. So there's massive spoilers for any of this. So if you haven't read Red but Rising and want to, stop listening. There's, there's, an emotion, there's, there's a really great emotional and physical dual crucible going on where the, the just a brief amount of setup for those who aren't players, you can get what's going on in this scene. So the main character, Darrow, is attempting to infiltrate the elite of society so he can free his people. Now, in order to do that, he has to get past this test where he's thrown into a room where he either kills the other applicant in the room or the other applicant's going to kill him. And it has dual crucibles going on. Because on the one hand, there's his own sense of justice and morality weighed against, well, if he fails here, he can't free his people. Also, complement with the very physical crucible of it's him or me. Regardless of what I decide, he is going to attack me and I have to react to that. That's an excellent example. I really like that. So how do you incorporate crucibles into a story? There's lots of ways doing it through secret. It can be a coworker. You can't escape a coworker. Like going back to the office example, you've got love, which is nice for Jim and Pam once they figure it out. But he's also, you know, stuck with Dwight. <laughs> so the crucible is a professional who can't quit his job so easily. You can think about like marriage is a crucible. You can't just so easily escape a marriage and and Jane Eyre is a great example of that so you think about um, your character's professions their relationships if there's not enough interesting things going on then you then there can be a secret relationship you didn't know about that before and Star Wars is fabulous with that of course because we don't know that Luke and Vader are related in the beginning and that that's something that they carry on throughout the whole series as they do prequels and additional sequels and things is that there's always like a deeper the family relationships are always getting extended that's like at the core it's like a continuous crucible even though Vader dies thinking about their professions their relationships as far as emotional ones go physical closed environments you're not always going to have those in every story but maybe like you've got a scene that's not so interesting maybe if they're stuck in a rainstorm together it's more interesting you know, just something like that that's going to help raise the tension a bit. Maybe a way to think of it more generally is that if you can limit the the available choices, that's a way to increase tension. I like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think specifically because I've talked about on this podcast before, but I mean, the, the entire crux of your story needs to revolve around your characters making decisions. And if your characters aren't making decisions, then nothing's happening. And if you can limit the number of decisions that your characters can make, that will infinitely increase the tension that your characters are experiencing and therefore that your readers are vicariously experiencing. 
One of my favorite crucibles is between Aang and Zuko in The Last Airbender, which we talk about that. I feel like it's Harry Potter and Avatar The Last Airbender in like every episode. Um, I'm okay. I'm okay with that. That's yes, probably driven by me. But I, I think their crucible is really fun because it goes so deep because Zuko has to capture Aang in order to be readmitted into his own family. And that particular one mutates because eventually they end up on the same side. But Zuko's father is still his father. Mm-hmm. and But his father is still a genocidal maniac. And also, um, and Aang is friends with Zuko, so that makes the situation more complicated, combined with the fact that he's actually a pacifist and doesn't want to kill anyone. Mm-hmm. So you get a whole bunch of, of irreconcilable people. motives and goals, and it makes the whole thing really tense. Anytime you can think of that your characters need each other, that's a good indication that you've got a crucible in the works. And if you can recognize that, you can um, milk it for all of it, all it's worth. Like another example is like, going to school together, right? There's a reason why school stories are so popular. And for me, like Harry Potter, whenever they get to Hogwarts, this story just instantly gets 20 times more interesting, not just because Hogwarts is a really cool place, but they're also stuck in that really cool place, even though they did have some crucible situations on the way, but there's just something really magical about a school setting. And when you have a fantastic a really interesting school or any, if your closed environment can be really fascinating, like the arena in the Hunger Games or Hogwarts, then that's a fantastic closed environment crucible. We've got about a minute left. Does anyone have any final thoughts on the subject before we transition over? I I just want to say this is probably one of the most important podcasts that I've participated in since I started regularly joining. I mean, just because the the crucible, the character crucible dynamic that we've been talking about is such an important aspect of your book. It doesn't have to be a stark, like noticeable crucible like we've been talking about with Katniss mm-hmm. or with Star Wars. Like it's just anything that your that your character emotionally has to grapple with in, inside themselves. And they come out either better or worse in the end. And if you can, if you can incorporate dozens of tiny crucibles throughout your story or just one large crucible or, you know, any number of them, your story is going to be all the better for that because they add so much tension. And and I can't think of a better topic to discuss with, especially beginning writers who are struggling getting their ideas onto the page, struggling figuring out how to get from beginning to end. This is such an important part of the process that, that if you start to frame it in your head as this is a process, this is a crucible, this is what my characters are going to go through in the story, then you can start to map those things and you can start to really write them. And and it's, it's something that took me years and years to learn as a, as a beginning writer. So any beginning writers listening, watching this podcast, however you, however you watch or listen, this is, this is probably one of the most important ones that you can listen to. I think that it, it makes the difference between having a character-driven story and a plot-driven story a lot of times. Because if you have things that you want to happen, a lot of times if you put your characters in a crucible to make it happen, then it makes a whole lot more sense. Amen. All right. Well, now we get to kind of take some of that crucible knowledge and apply it to a writing group scenario for the submission. So this week, the submission was about Henry, the son of a presidential candidate. He is walking home from school when he almost gets kidnapped. To the surprise of everyone, he discovers he has some sort of superpower 
and that he can't tell anybody about it. So what did we like about the submission? Um, I thought in general, it was pretty easy to follow, clean writing, good grammar. Like I wasn't really pausing a lot to struggle like what with what was going on and it flowed well. I liked the little bits of humor when they were there. I love the first line. It says, it started with tacos. Doesn't it always? I thought that was so funny. I thought, I, honestly, I thought that was a pretty good first line. I liked that one a lot. It, it really kind of gripped you in the author's head for a moment. Then yeah. stamp of approval. <laughs> yeah. I don't normally give it for first lines, so. <laughs> I really liked that the character is really proactive. I mean, he isn't necessarily at the very beginning, but once we get into where he um, walks home and then is there's an attempted kidnapping, he doesn't just, like... He doesn't stand there and take it. Yeah, he like throws his backpack into the kidnapper and he fights. And he, as I mean, is self described as like the pudgy little kid who can't pick up weights in the gym. And so he's mm-hmm. like, I really liked watching him as a character come to life right there. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously the the author did a really good job with starting uh, the book with an action scene, and and I think specifically what I what I what I struggle with a lot with submissions is that authors will take the advice to start with action and like immediately jump into an action scene that we are not grounded in and that doesn't make any sense at all this however did it really well in the fact that the author took time to explain things and and grounded us in these characters and their backgrounds before the action happened so it wasn't a boring first chapter but it also didn't just slam the action right in my face from the first paragraph so i thought that was really well done it was a cool angle to the kid of a presidential candidate. And I thought there were some really nice lines in here. Like it describes terror, like shrapnel through his body and um, just some nice descriptions when he gets his superpower. Mm-hmm. I really liked the line that said um, orange and red streaks across the sky and the air smelled like football and sweaters. That was a perfect fall sentence right there. If we're okay to move on to things that might need a second look. While I did love the first line when tacos weren't brought up again until much farther down the page it became a little confusing for me i agree with that i think after the first line everything can be basically cut until you get to the asterisk in the middle of the second page because it's a bunch of it's a bunch of dialogue that is just back and forth and it doesn't really move the story along it it kind of kind of broke up the pacing and it, it doesn't it doesn't really add to anything. I would just start with, it started with tacos, doesn't it always, and then go into what the tacos are precursing. It's a lot of grounding details, but it takes too long to get all of it across for what it's doing. Yeah. My big issue with it, with that um, first page, is that we don't really understand what Henry's internal problem is until after the asterisk. And that's the real hook is that he's the president's son, right? That's kind of, to me, the main internal hook of the story. So, and I want to be shown it rather than told it. So I would love for it to start with, so, the, you know, it's after school, the black sedan, the dark sedan can pull up and try to pick him up. And he's like embarrassed. And we see how it feels to have, you know, security detail come try to pick you up at your school. And, I needed a little bit more grounding personally into the setting. Like, is he in a private school because he's the president, uh, the potential president's son? I, I needed a little bit more setting grounding. Uh, but I think, I, in general, I wanted to be 
shown a little bit more of his internal problems, it can happen quickly. It feels like we spend a lot of time talking about the wrong details. It's not bad that we get yeah. that, but they are, we don't need them yet. Like, it's cool that we know that he knows Spanish and that he's going to this after-school club thing, but all of that only exists to tell us why he's leaving school later than everyone else. And just for that much, infor- that, that's literally all we needed to know for the action sequence to start. Mm-hmm. So we still want, we still want, like, the character, like, what character development we get. But I realize some of this is going to sound very contradictory, but if you, you can do the same amount of character building in a much smaller space and get to the action sequence quicker. Yeah. I think one of the big problems I felt was that you get two or three pages in and the biggest problem that this character has faced so far up to this point is whether or not his dad will become the president, which is not at all that compelling for a teen reader to read about a kid whose main concern three pages in is that, is my dad going to be the president or not? We definitely want to get to the, am I going to be kidnapped or not, uh, a lot a lot quicker. It doesn't mean that the kidnapping has to take place on, on page one, but maybe ground us a little bit more in, you know, my mom said I might get kidnapped, or my mom said I might get attacked, or my mom said I'm, I might be in danger a little bit earlier so that you can ground us and and um, not not have the sole problem that he faces for several pages be his dad's problem. Also, I never even, we never even know how he feels about, if we don't know if he wants his dad to become president or right. not. Yeah. There's not a connection there between, is he embarrassed? Is he happy? Like, how does it affect there's, him personally? What, how is the stakes for him? There's a couple sentences that talk about how he's not happy about having to choose between staying here and going away if his dad wins. But, but it's, it is later and, I, th- I feel like there are a lot of relatable concerns that you could focus on with the situation of my dad is going to become president, but like, like, like the most prescient one, well, I'm a target for kidnappers now. He brushes off. So there's a kind of, there's a dramatic irony in that reading that like he's totally about to get kidnapped, but there's no emotional tension from him because he, his only concern, the only, to me, it's like the only concern he raises, I don't know if I want to live in DC, it only gets a sentence. I feel like by the end of the first chapter, especially with middle grade, we should probably, maybe not the end of the first chapter, but close to it, we should know what our character wants and like yeah, why they want it. And by the end of this first chapter, I felt like I knew he thought he was chubby and that he had superpowers and couldn't tell anyone about it, but I wasn't really sure why it would matter to him that he had superpowers other than it being cool. It just, it seems like I didn't know a whole lot more about him than I did at the beginning of the chapter we're out of time but does anyone have any final thoughts before we wrap up i was just going to say a couple more things i feel like a lot of the writing in this in this um passage was a little underdeveloped the author relies heavily on passive voice i i mean i couldn't count how many number how many times i read the word was even on just the first page let alone the, the entire passage a lot of authors don't even realize that they're using passive voice to start with when they start writing, but being able to recognize it in your own writing is one of the most important skills that you'll develop as a writer. So as you, as you write, just try to recognize when you're using passive voice. And when you do recognize it, you'll be able to stop yourself, ask yourself how you can write it actively, and it will turn out 
better every time and you'll just get better and better at recognizing it so that your sentences and your paragraphs and your pages and your story ultimately will be an active one rather than a passive one. There was one thing that I did want to look at that I wasn't, I mean, Ben can argue with me if he wants to. Um, I felt like the violence level was pretty high for like a middle grade book and I could be wrong, but like for contemporary middle grade, seeing a little kid like get kicked by an adult seems too much for me. Am I wrong? Uh, that That is kind of a really gray area, at least in my opinion. If we ground this in a fantasy setting, I think it's a little bit less of an issue because fantasy readers tend to like violence, like the violence a little bit more and they're okay with it <laughs> because the main character is going to be able to fight back. That's um, what my issue was because it was contemporary. Yeah. And so I think this is another issue that I wanted to bring up was that I, I didn't even know that this was like a power thing that he was, that went on with him. Like as I was reading, I was confused whether it was an adrenaline rush that he experienced or whether it was some magical power thing that was going to be explained later on in the book. If this is going to be a magical story with powers and things, I want to know from basically page one and not be dragged on for chapters waiting to figure out what it is. Like with Spider-Man, for example, and this might not be the best example because we all know Spider-Man, but we, we go in knowing that this is going to be a superhero movie. And so we're okay waiting until Spider-Man gets his powers to watch him have his powers and do fun things and, and stop bad guys. But if it were not Spider-Man, and it's just a story about a kid going to school who gets bitten by a radioactive spider and all of a sudden develops these spider abilities, when beforehand the only issue he had faced was whether or not his dad was going to be president like th- those are two diametrically opposed conflicts and and stories that are that are being told so something needs to happen in this story to tell me from page one this is a world filled with people who have powers or it's about to be and that's going to drive a lot of the conflict yeah i thought i was reading a political thriller right up until the superpower showed up and it was very jarring yeah fabulous points and i agree with everything you guys just said um in general i i thought I had a hard time understanding his age. I didn't know if it was a middle grade or young adult because they never really said how old he was. And so that made me question a lot of his voice at times. Like while some of the descriptions were really fascinating, like I thought, okay, why is he referring to like Flash Gordon and Shrapnel and things like that? Because I didn't know him well enough before this big action scene took place. And I also hadn't seen him fail yet as a character before he, he was suddenly winning this attack in chapter one. So I wanted actually to get more grounded into his real life more. And that can happen with the stuff Ben's talking about with giving us a promise of that this is going to be a fantastical, adventurous, like superhero type story. But there's kind of like a general rule you can think about with grounding the character in their real world problems before the inciting incident. And that's um, thinking of them at home and at work and at play. And you can gauge that more with his age level and what that would mean to him um and it's not just getting told it like but getting shown like his mom his family is like this his mom is saying stuff like about kidnapping to him actually in the scene the dark sedans coming to his school stuff like that and um, because then we would understand him more and understand that he's a, pud- a pudgy kid with all these issues and then in general as far as prose goes in addition to the passive voice issue which um ben was talking about 
there's tons of really long sentences. Like almost every sentence is a really long sentence, which is probably number one, a little bit difficult for a middle grade reader. And it also slows down the action, um, which a lot of this chapter is an action scene. So they're usually quick sentences when high action is happening, especially all that mystical stuff that starts happening, like all these really long descriptions, but really that would be happening so fast. And so it would be just really quick thoughts. They don't have to be necessarily beautifully written thoughts. And again, that goes to his voice. So those are my final thoughts. But in general, it was a really clean, it flowed really well. I, you know, I thought it was, I, thought, I liked it. Me too. Thanks to, thanks to this author for submitting and thanks for your input, uh, Catherine and Ben. Thank you for coming on the show. We, I learned a lot at least. So glad you guys were here. Um, our guest next episode will be New York Times bestseller, Dan Wells, author of the I Am Not a Serial Killer series. If you'd like a first chapter critique from Dan, remember to check our submission guidelines and get us your first chapter by December 11th. We will be recording live on December 18th. Remember, this is both a video and a podcast, so you can either watch us on our YouTube channel, listen on Apple Podcasts, or whatever app you use. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review or a comment. It helps others to find the show. If you want to ask us questions or tell us we're awesome, you can find us on Twitter at Lit Service or on Facebook and Instagram at Lit Service Podcast. For Lit Service, thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>